This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, both the AIDS epidemic and COVID-19 inflicted disproportionate deaths in the Black community. We'll explore the reasons why. And the second volume on a biography of the most important Black activist and intellectual that you may never have heard of is about to be published. Stay tuned to learn why you must know the name and works of Hubert Harrison. But first, U.S. politicians have for generations gained power by scaring white people with threatening images of black males. President Trump is running on a platform that essentially mimics the old newspaper headline, Black Buck Runs Amok. Douglas Flo is professor of history at Washington University in St. Louis. He's written a book titled Uncontrollable Blackness. African-American Men and Criminality in Jim Crow, New York. Uncontrollable Blackness is a provocative title. Was it planned that way? Yes, definitely. I, it means provoked. There are a lot of ways in which uncontrollable blackness can be read in separate ways. First of all, we have, during the time of this study in the early 20th century, we have a lot of progressives, people who are critical of African-Americans, critical of their lifestyle, and definitely those who are critical of working-class African-Americans, very often will describe them as uncontrollable. The term uncontrollable, in some ways, is hinting at the fact that while I'm talking about criminality, I'm also talking about these perspectives that criminalize African-Americans. And then on the flip side of that, saying uncontrollable is also meant to kind of invoke the idea that a lot of the men I'm writing about, they're looking to not be controlled by all of the powers that are seeking to control their lives. So by saying that they are uncontrollable, I'm both invoking the gaze of others upon them, but also the spirit that they might be acting in when they commit certain types of crimes or behaviors that are later criminalized by others. So the book and the term are both meant to recognize those men in history who did, in fact, commit illegal acts, but certainly not in order to emphasize them as criminal. And that's one thing about the title that I want people to understand. It's not to emphasize them as criminal. Certainly, most black men did not commit crimes. But it's meant to begin the uncomfortable dialogue about how the society around someone might frame or, in, or even encourage their actions in order to diagnose the issue and understand what it is that might exist in American society that might render illegality into a form of resistance when the law itself is bent against you. And in fact, you write mm -hmm. in your essay that illegality is and has been an essential aspect of Black resistance. Yes, definitely. The sort of resistance that African Americans have had to an, an overall white power structure against racial inequality, they haven't always been respectable or even legal or even sustainable. So thinking about uncontrollable blackness is ultimately meant to reevaluate criminality as a response to ongoing intergenerational trauma 
And to understand that in a lot of ways, and I think this is something else I say in the essay, in a lot of ways, we can understand crime as just the flip side of the coin of protest, because protest very often happens in response to the very same issues that someone who commits an act of criminality might be responding to. So I want to integrate men who were either criminalized or those who actually did, in fact, commit certain crimes into the historiography about responses to black to racial inequality by African Americans overall. So there's a way in which uncontrollable blackness is meant to kind of hook into the idea that we can see certain types of crime, even the ones that might strain our comprehension, as being a part of a broader long-term civil rights movement. And I know that you don't try to romanticize crime as some do, but you point out that crime and protest are two sides of the same coin. Yes. You know, it's really, it's such a difficult subject. When I decided to do this project, I was thinking, you know, the first thing you do as a historian is you look to see whether or not someone has done the project that you are dreaming of. And when I dreamt this project up, I looked in, you know, I was kind of just kind of looking through a lot of uh, other literature, and I didn't find that anyone had written about black men and crime specifically. There are a number of very good books uh, about black women and criminality, uh, namely Colored Amazons by Kali Gross and Talk With You Like a Woman by Cheryl Hicks. But no one had tackled the subject of black men and criminality. It made me realize that it's a very taboo subject, and you see that subject in sociology, but not in the subject of history. And so approaching this subject, I had to ask myself a number of questions. One, I don't want to sound, as you you mentioned already, as if I'm romanticizing criminality, right? Criminality, in a lot of ways, is not only a response to a broader power structure, but it, it could also be something that destroys communities, that hurts the fabric of a community that is attempting to repair itself from a lot of the damage that comes from the outside. So I, I don't want to romanticize criminality, but I also don't want to condemn the people that I'm writing about. As a historian, the way that I approached this was to think of myself like a surgeon. A surgeon, when someone comes into the emergency room with some sort of massive head trauma, the surgeon doesn't begin to judge the person and say, well, if you were to live your life a particular way, maybe you wouldn't have this head trauma. But they also wouldn't recoil in horror from the root, from the wounds that they see. They would instead look very carefully at the illness in order to understand and to begin to heal. And so my book is meant to identify the illness in our society that has placed African-American men in juxtaposition to the American legal schema, to stare at it very carefully and to neither judge nor condemn, but to understand it for the purpose of beginning to unravel some of the historical roots that have wrapped themselves around this problem. And to use your example, any good doctor would want to know the medical history of the patient. And in terms of black folks, that means slavery. Yes. When I was really uh, getting deeper into this project, I realized that in order to make true sense of this issue as a historical factor, I needed to come up with some sort of theoretical model to explain it. And uh, as you mentioned, I looked into the past even before the time of study, and I came up with a theoretical model that I call the crucible of black criminality, which acknowledges a number of factors in American history, a number of different historical factors that have led to or that have pushed in a lot of ways, pushed African-Americans, and in this case we're talking about African-American men, in order to survive or in order to thrive or in order to 
build their own identities or to attach themselves to any sense of gender, that they, in a lot of ways, have to step outside of the law. So I've identified um, enslavement that sets up the dynamic of racial control and resistance between African-Americans and whites, and that the dynamic of racial control and racial caste that continues outside of the context of enslavement. And then I also look at the violence of bondage, how murderousness begets murderousness and self-defense and resistance that can be violent. I look at masculinity and how African-American men have been denied access to the normative trappings of, of American masculinity, which include financial stability, the ability to command public and private space, to protect oneself and one's family, etc. I also look at the economic threats, the, the fact that American capitalism has always included vast amounts of inequality and that African-Americans have borne the brunt of that inequality. And then lastly, I look at the American urge to contain sources of mainstream anxiety, which have very often resulted in containing African-Americans in ways that pose existential threats to them. So I root the book in this very rich historical realm where I'm able to say this is not simply uh, a number of stories that might invoke thought about African-American men and criminality, but I connect these stories to this long-term, very, very plotted out, right? This isn't a mistake. These things are very plotted out and very intentional. These long-term ways in which African-Americans have been treated, have been cornered, have been in a lot of ways limited, set upon with boundaries that make the law, which is, you know, the law and, and, and state and national policy very often supports these things that are limiting African-Americans. It makes it so that the law or breaking the law becomes a form of resistance. Not to oversimplify what you've been saying, it appears that you're speaking of many, many insurgencies that Black men in particular are waging. So in terms of illegality often being a kind of revolt, you write in your essay about millions of personal or collective revolts, that is, collective among black men, to America's unique combination of racial prejudice and economic injustice. Seeing it that way, in understanding our own people, where do we draw lines between crime and righteous resistance? Yes, that's a really great question. And I think that being section of the essay, I mentioned a quote from Martin Luther King, where he says, communism forgets that life is individual, capitalism forgets that life is social, and the kingdom of brotherhood is found in neither, but in a higher synthesis that combines the truths of both. And I think that means that ultimately, when I'm writing about criminality, I can, I can contextualize it and understand it as a revolt, as you just read. And I can understand it as a response to a broader system that in some ways we, we might be able to understand as valid. But I think recently we've seen a lot of turmoil in the country. We've seen a lot of conversations that have been very heated, and we have a president that in a lot of ways likes to inflame those debates. And I think ultimately the question is, how do we all end up living together? We have three choices. We can either separate, we can create two separate countries where liberals and Republicans or black and white people live separately. We could fight to the death. We could have some, some huge fight where many millions of people die. Or the only other option is to find a way to live together. 
And I think that that was ultimately at the bottom of Martin Luther King's quote that I, that I quoted from him, that ultimately we have to find ways to create a system that is not so out of balance that so many people, so many Americans, and in this case we're talking about African-Americans, feel the need or are pushed to or are marginalized into a position where this sort of illegality may seem necessary. Ultimately, we have to create a world that is more balanced and more equitable, create some sort of equilibrium where identity and the merits of selfhood can coexist with social responsibility. I just uh, asked that for my interview, where these sorts of actions are not necessary. Um, so as I said before, I'm not romanticizing these things. I'm not saying that criminality is the good thing. My entire body of work in uncontrollable blackness is meant to explain it, but explain it as something that needs to be changed, not by changing necessarily the individual, but by changing the society that we all live in and that we all participate in, in some ways. There's a Buddhist quote that says, when you take care of yourself, you take care of others. And when taking care of others, you take care of yourself. And I think ultimately, that is the only way for us to excise all of these illnesses that uncontrollable blackness talks about from our broader society. We're not just talking about history, but we're also talking about today. Actually, you sound very much like many of the young protesters who urge us all to imagine a world in which there is no policing as we know it and no prisons as we have known them. Yes, definitely. You know, I think that there's a really interesting book called The End of Policing that in a lot of ways, I think, makes sense. We, you know, we've seen all these debates about the end of policing and people think that it, it means to just completely wipe out any form of authority. But what it really means is to change, to vastly change the, the culture, the funding, and the blue code of silence that has for decades, I'm also writing about police brutality that happened at the early 20th century and the end of the 19th century, that for, for more than a century has supported violence, that has supported all different types of inequalities when it comes to policing and imprisonment, that the idea is to end that sort of police, not to make society completely vulnerable to criminality by getting rid of any sort of policing system, but to understand that police officers are aggressive by nature and that they often use violence to handle situations that should be handled peacefully or through counseling or through some other form of recourse and to completely change the culture that leads to the sorts of violence that killed George Floyd in Minneapolis. I think that my book fits into this broader literature by making it very clear how not only uh, broader society and inequality and racism, but also policing itself has a part in creating the rationale for different types of criminality. One of the scholars that you recognize and cite is Michelle Alexander of The New Jim yeah. Crow. And it does appear in the 13 years or so since its publication that The New Jim Crow has gone far towards delegitimizing the U.S criminal justice system, and prison system. Yes, there are so many ways in which that book will not only has been influential for me, but, it, but it does, it's a really wonderful display of, and readable display of all of the different ways in which mass incarceration has become yet another racial caste system. 
that's one of her main arguments in the book. And I use this with my students at Washington University very often, and it's very effective. One of the things that I think that book does very well, and which I am attempting to do to kind of further with uncontrollable blackness, is she makes it very clear how part of the problem in our approaches to criminality and policing is that it's very difficult to advocate for men or women or anyone who is criminalized, who goes to prison, someone who's convicted, or someone who is even suspected of a crime. Because in our culture, we have this idea that criminals are non-citizens. She makes this point in the book that because we see criminals as non-citizens and we see them as people who we can completely forget about their civil rights when we deal with them, then it's very difficult to begin to advocate for them. And one of the goals of my book was to further the cause of humanizing people who have actually committed crimes or who have been criminalized, whether they committed a crime or not. To humanize, in this case, African-American men and make it very clear how there are some cases in my book where you can actually possibly see yourself reacting the same way that some of the men did in the book to some of the same stimuli. And I think that that humanism, the humanization of people that we traditionally, in our popular culture, in our political conversations, and very often in our personal lives, see as kind of cut off from the mainstream, humanizing those people is yet one more step towards bringing ourselves to being able to advocate for them and being able to understand some of the causes of criminality as the responsibility of a broader society. I think that was one of the really very poignant aspects of the New Jim Crow. And I see my book as kind of a part of furthering that cause. And political prisoners and the United States is still holding at least a score of political, black political prisoners since the 1960s. Political prisoners Mm -hmm. did commit crimes, according to the law, Mm -hmm. but they Mm -hmm. were crimes of rebellion and not the kind of rebellion you speak of in your book, but open rebellion against an unjust system. Yes, I open the book with a quote from Maladoma Patrice Somme from his book Of Water and the Spirit, where he says, there are times when disobedience heals the very ailing part of the self. It relieves the human spirit's distress at being forced into narrow boundaries. For the nearly powerless, defying authority is often the only power available. And what I think he means is that disobedience, which can often be finding one's way around a seemingly immutable power structure, when that power structure is bent against you, disobedience, or what one might call criminality, can sometimes be the only source of resistance. And so I think that the whole idea of criminality and protest being two sides of the same coin is in a lot of ways encapsulated in what we've seen from some political prisoners who in the 60s and in the 70s very often were a part of the Black Power Movement, were maybe a part of the Black Panthers or other types of organizations like that across the country, that in very explicit terms merged protests with criminality to further their cause. So yes, I mean, I think that the uncontrollable blackness in a lot of ways encapsulates all of these different ways in which we have seen the merging of political protests and criminality. But then whether the person is is thinking of it that way or not, there are a lot of men in my book who don't speak about their plight in political terms, but who are reacting very clearly to political systems that surround them, who restrict them, and place them in a position where they don't have the ability to control or even work 
to control their own lives that other men do have. Part of the reason why I think the subject of black men and criminality hasn't been addressed in a historical study up until now is it's very clear that the subject is and has been to some extent a bit taboo. A lot of people who have probably thought about writing this subject have been worried about, as I was, reproducing the idea that African-American men are any possible way more prone to criminality than any other men. Talking about this subject is very difficult because my goal is not to say that black men committed crimes more often than anyone else. And it could be very easy for someone to get that impression, especially if they don't read the book very closely. So I had to be very careful. What I do want to say is that that is not the argument of the book at all, but it is meant to give voice to those men who found themselves entangled with the law, whether it was their fault or not, to give voice to their motivations, to add them to the historiography, and to, to make sure that we are, are, are able to see them as important historical actors that fit into the broader struggle by African Americans for civil rights. That was Professor Douglas Flo speaking from St. Louis, Missouri. There's nothing new about the high death toll blacks are suffering from the COVID-19 contagion. 30 years ago, the HIV AIDS epidemic killed disproportionate numbers of black people. J.T. Rohn is a research fellow at the Schomburg Research Center in Black Culture in New York City. He wrote an article about AIDS and Black Philadelphia. I think for so many, because of the early framing of HIV, it was really characterized as a white gay men's disease, right? That really shaped who could be accounted for in the epidemiology. It shaped the kinds of responses that people were able to forge. I think we could think about the resonance between the early discussion of COVID-19 and say, for example, the continent, right? The idea that somehow magically Africans weren't susceptible, that black people weren't susceptible. I think we could see parallels and resonances with the early HIV discussion. And I think in particular, it was really difficult to bring a spotlight on the black sufferers of HIV because of the kinds of stigma that those folks already faced, not only as black and often poor and working class people, but also queer folk, as well as intravenous drug users and other vulnerable populations. Yes, framing HIV as a disease of white gay men must have blinded investigators to what you call the unique geography of black susceptibility to the virus. What do you mean unique geography? I think because of the characterization of the condition as one associated with a kind of sexual openness and gay nightlife and white gay sort of sexual proclivities, it blinded epidemiologists and other groups to the kinds of locations and geographies associated with the condition in relation to black communities. So for example, while in Philadelphia, the AIDS task force was willing to and fully capable of placing information in white gay publication, in doing the kinds of work that you mentioned in terms of contact tracing in relation to white gay men, they all but ignored black communities. They all but ignored them. So black queer bars, for example, one that I discussed in the work that had five or six well-known patrons die within a year, 
they weren't on the map, right? They weren't on the map. And that really, really did shape, even up through now, the long-term trajectory of the disease, of AIDS. By not intervening with harm reduction early and effectively in Black communities, that has continued to shape the ways that the condition is disproportionately distributed. And so in Philadelphia, into this cauldron of political and epidemiological drama steps the person who's a heroine of your piece, Rashida Hassan. Yes, Rashida Hassan, in many ways, along with some of the other Black queer folks like John Paul Hammond, who I write about in a larger work, really stepped up in the 1980s and 1990s to not only expose and illustrate the ways that Black communities were susceptible, in Rashida Hassan's case, particularly heterosexual Black women, and in the case of John Paul Hammond, queer Black men, they stepped into this context to say, first of all, we must intervene in relation to Black communities. We cannot pretend as if this is not happening, which itself was a major intervention. Not only were white public health officials ignoring Black sufferers, but also conservative Black religious institutions and other organizations really did enforce a kind of silence around these issues. So I think what's really important about Rashida Hassan in particular and Babashi is their capacity to connect the epidemiological evidence through historical and other kinds of frameworks that made it really clear that Black women were suffering HIV AIDS, in particular through Wabashi's work, disproportionately because of their position in the kind of political, economic, and historical matrix of Philadelphia. And in Philly, the late 1980s and 1990s, experienced, like many places, mass deindustrialization. Between 1970 and 1980, Philadelphia lost over 100,000 industrial jobs. That had all of these pernicious effects on Black communities that influenced and that shaped what epidemiologists might consider simply behavior. So I think Hassan and other folks really tried to say that this is a whole political ecology, that HIV AIDS is a part of a political ecology, and we can't address it without addressing those conditions. And so Babashi and Hassan really place at the center not only this kind of behavioral analysis, but these larger structural analysis. They wanted to connect very basic and important harm reduction, like information about needle exchange, information about condoms, along with a kind of political education. Yes, and you can't just say condoms, needle exchange, etc., without discussing where and how those those things should be distributed and made accessible to the right people. John Paul is Hammond, who I write about in a larger project, who was one of the co-founders of Prevention Point, Philadelphia's first needle exchange. They understood needles, clean needlework, condoms and information as a kind of currency of reciprocity and not as ends within themselves. I think that's quite distinct from even how we continue to have public health discussions, often very fatalistic in relation to Black communities and in which condoms or these other things are understood in a very limited behavioral model. These folks are like, these are only units of exchange that can create the conditions for people's well-being and the reduction of their harm, they're not ends within themselves. 
You seem to be saying that white institutional denial about the realities of race in Philadelphia and everywhere else in the country made them incapable of seeing the evidence that might be right in front of their faces. Oh, definitely. And I think that's an ongoing problem with epidemiology. As Antoine Johnson has discussed in another context, epidemiologists have very limited engagements with Black concerns and Black health matters. This is a common problem in epidemiology and in public health, where the kind of normative subjects within that research are white and often middle class. And the ways that behavioral models play out from that are often structured in that way, which makes it, you know, as Kathy Cohen pointed out a while ago, it makes literally black communities invisible to these institutions. So despite the kind of mounting evidence of death in Philadelphia, for example, the early epidemic was always at least half black and Latinx. So 55% by 86 are recognized as black and Latinx. And yet the AIDS task force and the kinds of white gay organizations that emerged to respond or that were already on the ground and and responding, they, totally ignore Black suffering. Yes, and it was left up to these activists to develop the analysis and the methodologies that were later adapted by the professionals. Oh, yes. I think that's such an important part of it. Black harm reductionists are often overlooked. We can think about the kind of whitewashing of HIV AIDS activism in general, the kind of work that's done to highlight ACT UP and other organizations in New York City. Part of the problem is that many of the Black folks who were involved in these kinds of organizing efforts didn't survive the epidemic or succumb later to other health conditions that affect Black folks disproportionately. And so what we're left with is these kinds of narratives and histories that suggest that it's white gay men who were in the center always of doing that work, which we know is just patently not true. And I think both Babashi and just in Philly in general, black activists are really the folks who drive the really generative work that happens. So again, I think between Babashi and Prevention Point and these other kinds of, and even ACT UP in Philly, which was much blacker than ACT UP New York, they are really forging the ground for a generative frame around HIV AIDS public health. The pathology of AIDS and COVID-19 are quite different, but both of them result in disproportionate fatalities among Black people. And the discussion now, as in 30-something years ago, seems to revolve around why that is. Is it Black lifestyles? Is it racism in the health delivery system? We had this discussion once before regarding the HIV. I think that's why we have to get away from strictly behavioral analyses in general. First of all, the idea that, say, for example, sexual activity or whatever can be taken out of context is absurd. And that's part of what Babashi pointed out in particular, the ways in which Black women's susceptibility in relation to sexual violence was within a kind of political ecology and matrix of deindustrializing Philadelphia. This is a common trope. It doesn't start with HIV AIDS. If you look at discourses from the 1920s about tuberculosis, you see a very similar profile. Even after the discovery of the bacteria that causes tuberculosis, public health officials in places like Philadelphia 
as Sam Roberts has shown in Baltimore and other places, still held out the idea that it was a black condition, that there was something particular about either black life or black activity that made, say, for example, tuberculosis specific to black bodies. But even then, I mean, we have on the other side of this long trajectory of medical racism, you also have a long trajectory of black health activism. And in that context of tuberculosis, for example, Sadie Tanner, most Alexander, in 1926, for example, published a study on tuberculosis in Philadelphia that said, look, actually, the black folks who live among the Irish have the highest rates of tuberculosis. Actually, in these sections of the city where housing is overcrowded and dilapidated is where you have higher rates of tuberculosis. This is not a black condition. And I think we could see that legacy playing forward into HIV and now up through COVID of black health activists really, really highlighting the large, broad structural issues that affect even what we might consider behavioral. And I think we get in a really bad space and we're seeing it play out again. Fauci in the the current administration with these narratives and discussions around black behavior, which are just patently wrong. I think if we're going to have even discussions about disproportionate health burdens pre-COVID that then are exacerbated by COVID, we still have to have discussions about food deserts. We have to have discussions about policing and violence. We have to contextualize these conditions rather than focusing on viruses or bacteria and behaviors. Again, it's been more than 30 years, and AIDS now seems to be an even blacker disease than when it first was discovered in the United States, with at least half of the new infections being in African Americans. Yes, black communities continue to really suffer from HIV. And we can all recall, perhaps a couple of years ago, the CDC's very fatalistic description that within a few years, that one of every two black queer men would be positive. Those kinds of rhetorical strategies, which are, I guess, at least intended by public health officials to galvanize people are actually, their fatalism is actually performative in the sense that it creates the conditions that do then allow for that kind of disease burden to be distributed in that way. The thing is, we need to nix all understandings of HIV AIDS as some kind of issue of pathological behavior. We know, for example, that when it comes to drug use and illicit drug use, that white college-age men are the worst users, right? (laughs) We know that when it comes to risky sex, quote-unquote, Black folks are not any more likely to engage in risky sex. And many populations, if you do the kinds of division work, are less likely to engage in risky sex than their white counterparts. What that tells us is that it's not about behavior, it's about the context in which behaviors happen. And so when we think about, for example, HIV in relation to sexuality, we really have to think about sexual segregation, the kind of violent demarcation of borders around sex, which again drives epidemic like HIV because you have smaller sexual populations who are isolated and contained, and that is actually what drives the condition, not who's having more sex without condoms or not. J.T. Roan is working on a book to be titled Dark Agoras, Insurgent Black Social Life and the Politics of Place in 20th Century Philadelphia. In the first quarter of the 20th century, an immigrant from the Virgin Islands named Hubert Harrison influenced a whole generation of Black activists, including Marcus Garvey, 
A. Philip Randolph, and the entire so-called New Negro Movement. Activist and scholar Jeffrey Perry has spent more than a decade chronicling the life and works of Hubert Harrison and will soon release the second volume of his biography titled Hubert Harrison, The Struggle for Equality. It's the first multi-volume biography of an Afro-Caribbean, full-life multi-volume biography of an Afro-Caribbean and only the fourth of an African-American. So he is really, I think, a giant. And in his era, he was arguably the most class-conscious of the race radicals and the most race-conscious of the class radicals. He was a brilliant, autodidactic, working-class, race- and class-conscious writer, orator, editor, educator, book reviewer, political activist, and radical internationalist. And in this volume that I've just completed, there is so much material, I believe, for current and future generations to draw from in so many areas, whether it be his political activism, his book reviews, his comments on individuals. But I also think he understood What's very crucial for struggle still today is he understood the centrality of the struggle against white supremacy to radical social change efforts in the U.S. And when he was with the socialists, he raised that issue, and he wound up leaving the socialists because he saw and concluded that the socialists and the labor movement put the white race first before class, so he broke from that. He had previously concluded and wrote about it that politically the Negro, in the words of the day, the Negro is the touchstone of the modern democratic idea and true democracy and equality for the Negro implies a revolution startling to even think of. He understood, I think, how central that was. That was one of the things that appealed to me first. But after he left the socialists, then he did some independent work for a while But then he kind of went out on his own and he founded the first organization and the first newspaper of the militant New Negro movement. That was the paper and the Liberty League was the organization. This is around 1917. The voices eight years before Alain Locke's New Negro. Uh, Harrison then edits a publication called The New Negro in 1919, six years before Locke. And very significantly, in 1920, he becomes principal editor of Marcus Garvey's Negro World when that paper sweeps the globe. And so he's an extraordinary journalist, which you in particular, but others, I think, again, will find much to draw from. He's 100 years before you, but he's hitting on many of the same issues and topics which you're still confronting today. Well, Hubert Harrison clearly is right in the center and, in fact, one of the movers and shakers uh, and shapers of this new Negro movement. And even folks with a cursory uh, knowledge of recent Black history know about the new Negro movement, but lots of them don't know the name Hubert Harrison. Why is that? I elaborated on some of it in volume one, but there's there's more even that I'll, I'll comment on now. He was ignored for many, many years for some pretty traditional reasons. He was poor. He was working class. He was an immigrant. 
He was dark-skinned. He was he challenged the church, the strongest institution in the black community, a number of things like that. And he had no long-lasting organizational ties, and he dies young. He dies at 44 in 1927. But what I've come to really understand more fully now is that it's got a lot to do with how history gets written and how things just get passed on, particularly in the academy, and how people just kind of pat each other on the back and reprint things and they cite things. They often don't do good digging, you know, in terms of primary sources. One of the things I think readers will find of great interest and help in this second volume of my biography is it is rooted in primary sources, including Harrison's diary and his papers. And what's particularly unique about this is wherever possible, I try to include links directly to the original documents. So if Harrison writes something in his diary, I have a link to it where you can go and read the original source. He considered himself the first regular reviewer, book reviewer in, quote, Negro newspaper. And if he's reviewing a book in 1922 or 23, you can now read his comments, but then you can go directly to the book that he was reviewing back then, because I've searched hard to find links on permanent sites like Hathi Trust or the Internet Archive where these books may be available. And so I really wrote it to stand the test of time. You know, for 100 years, I want it to be a tool that people can use. But it's got a lot to do with how history is written. One example I'll give, I, I won't go into great detail now, but I do discuss it in my book, my reprint edition of When Africa Awakes, The Inside Story of the Strivings of the New Negro in the Western World. That's Harrison's book, 1920. And in my commentary on that, I comment on one of the leading scholars, if you will, on the New Negro and how in one of the books that he puts out, he and someone else put out, they include, I think it's eight or ten Harrison articles. This is finally when it's starting to recognize him. But of those articles, I think seven are totally misstated. They put the dates back longer, you know, after Harrison wrote them, so it loses a little of the priority and preeminence of Harrison's work. And they say things like Harrison was moved to his political radicalism during World War I because he was a follower of W.E.B. Du Bois, when in fact Harrison was, during World War I, the leading critic of Du Bois for Du Bois's position during World War I which Harrison criticizes in an article, Descent of Du Bois, where Du Bois says, we must forget our special grievances, special grievances being lynching, segregation, disfranchisement, and close ranks behind Woodrow Wilson's war effort. So more and more, I've come to appreciate that the way history is written has had a big effect on Harrison not being better known, but I think that's being overcome because when I started out, years ago, and the first volume came out, when I Googled Harrison's name, the Google tally was, it might have been 40 sites, and then it was up over 100 and some odd after a few years, you know, with lots of talks, And but then Google changed their algorithm, but it's still way up there now, and I'm really hoping to reach a lot of the younger activists and scholars with this work, and I'm hoping people like that will help get word out. 
But another thing I'm trying to do, and that's one reason I'm putting out information on this volume early, is because I'm trying to encourage people to not only, if they can, you know, get it themselves, get both volumes themselves, but try and make it a point to reach out to their public libraries and their school, you know, their college, university libraries to get copies of one or both books so that the public has access to this. Harrison was a great proponent of free public libraries. He thought they were one of the great institutions in this country. He often spoke freely at libraries. It's a way to reach the masses in his day, and it's still a way to reach the masses. And that was a primary concern of Harrison. He always sought to educate the masses. So I think the standard reasons he was not better known, what I mentioned earlier, but he was a critic also of many of the leading activists of his day. And so people sometimes got stung by his criticisms. It wasn't mean-spirited criticism, but they made it a point not to mention him later. But increasingly now, I've come to see, I'll read things, and I think Harrison, gee, he should have been in there. Somebody's writing on a new Negro, and they totally miss Harrison because he founds the first organization in 1917. He edits the new Negro in 1919. He uh, writes a book in 1920 subtitled, the inside story of the new Negro in the Western world. And yet everybody says, oh, Alain Locke, 1925, the new Negro. And it's partly because Locke is more palatable. It's a more middle-class arts-based movement. And Harrison's more politically driven. So it's, it's things like that. You spoke of his critique of Du Bois, or at least Du Bois in his position during World War One, But this guy, Harrison, interacted with everybody, household names now, A. Philip Randolph, Marcus Garvey, and Cyril Briggs, and a whole host of people. Could you talk about his interaction with Marcus Garvey? Yes, that's going to be a very significant section of volume two, because Harrison introduced Garvey to his first major talk in Harlem in 1917, and Garvey actually joined Harrison's organization. He was a follower of Harrison at first, but Garvey started going his own way, and there's many details into how Garvey finally takes off, and Harrison says, you know, while I was up, I always extended a hand to Garvey. I'd have him come speak at my meetings or speak afterwards, but he never got the same extension of the courtesy from Garvey. But Garvey starts to take off and starts building a large mass movement. And Garvey then asks, at the end of 1919, Garvey asked Harrison to lead a Negro college that Garvey wanted to set up. And Harrison, of course, is a great educator, and he was interested in that because Harrison had five children, and he was always in search of work. You know, he's living in poverty all the time, and he was interested. But as soon as Harrison kind of reported for duty, if you will, Garvey told him, you know, and made clear his real intent was to have Harrison edit the Negro World, his paper, which Harrison did because Harrison loved journalism and was doing that. So after Harrison's working for a few months for Garvey, he starts laying out some of his criticisms. First, he talks about how he reshaped the Negro world. And that section alone is just a wonderful piece of historical importance that I think you, again, and others will 
be interested in. It's a great chapter in the history of black journalism because how he talks, how he changed the headlines, the articles, how he was innovative with book review sections and poetry for the people and a host of other things that he does. But in the course of that, he, he gets to more intimately know Garvey and he becomes increasingly disillusioned with Garvey. And he details this in his diary. So a lot of this stuff has not previously come out. And he criticized Garvey for his bombast, his exaggerations. But particularly, he's critical of Garvey for his handling of monies in terms of monies collected for the Black Star Line and for Liberian Construction Loan. And again, there's a number of things. Harrison's very critical of Garvey. And I think what people will find in this volume is probably the strongest and most informed criticism of Garvey by one of his contemporaries, and it will offer much food for thought for people. Not that Harrison is perfect, by the way. In my book, in the introduction, I open up with a quote from J.A. Rogers, a few quotes, a quote from Eugene O'Neill, who Harrison corresponded with J.A. Rogers, and even Harrison himself, when he writes in his diary, he kind of wrote his diary for those who would come after him, and he put things down, and he goes, I'm writing it here now, but I don't want to hide things. I want to lay out as I understand them, and I think later on some things will be important, some things less important, but so his diaries are quite honest and frank for the most part. But then Eugene O'Neill says, when you're writing about a person, tell the true story. Don't try and just propagandize about somebody being great and tell a truthful story. And I quote from O'Neill in the introduction. But then Rogers, who knew Harrison very well, J.A. Rogers sometimes lived with Harrison and his family, and they were very close until Harrison died. And he has one passage, which I quote in the beginning of the book, that no man is perfect to his valet. In other words, we all got our faults. But in the case of Harrison, that's no reason to deny his essential greatness. So getting back to Garvey now, you know, I lay out some of the things. I, I'm very honest about things Harrison does for the reader to decide, you know, where he's right, where he's not. But he has very strong and pronounced criticisms of Garvey. And in Garvey's era, there were some of the contemporaries, others, you know, Cyril Briggs was a big critic of Garvey. Du Bois was a critic. You know, a lot of the people you mentioned were critics of Garvey. But it was also contended by some that Garvey was running a Ponzi scheme, if you're familiar with that phrase. It was just a hustle because the money was not accounted for. He was selling stock for ships that he didn't own, things like that. So Harrison goes into that. It's got to be controversial, <laughs> I suspect. <laughs> A. Philip Randolph is remembered by most as a labor leader, but in the early 20s, when he and Hubert Harrison were moving in the same circles, A. Philip Randolph was quite radical. Yes, he was, and he was in the Socialist Party, and it's Randolph who describes Harrison as the father of Harlem radicalism, and he kind of gets moved in the direction of socialism by Harrison. But Harrison has a certain distance from Randolph after a point because Randolph is tied up with Owen, Chandler Owen. And they, at first, they were dabbling with the established political parties, and then they went from one to another, and Harrison criticized them for that. And then 
you know, they started getting involved ultimately with the messenger. But one key thing, Glenn, that I found very important when I'm talking about Harrison and why his efforts sometimes failed with his publications and why Du Bois had some success with his publications and Briggs had some success with his publications and Randolph and Owen, a key thing is to follow the money and see where they're getting their funding from. And I go into this in detail, who's supporting them. For instance, Du Bois is getting money from Spingarn in the early years, and then later he gets sums of money from a foundation called the Garland Fund. The Garland Fund gives to Randolph and Owen. Briggs gets money from the Communist Party. Garvey gets money from his financial schemes, if you will. So this all gets very complicated. There's lessons in this. And Harrison, for instance, Harrison refused to take money. Basically, he wanted to be independent and black-directed publications, so he refused. It was said that in 1917-18, he refused $10,000 from a white donor because he said he wanted us to control the direction of this publication. So there are things like that that are gone into in the publication so you want to put Hubert Harrison in the pantheon of black notables, not just of that era, but of black politics in general. How, in a phrase, should people remember Hubert Harrison? In a phrase, he is an outstanding, race-conscious, radical internationalist, founder of the militant New Negro movement and the most class-conscious of the race radicals and the most race-conscious of the class radicals of his day. By the way, Glenn, when you mentioned before about Harrison getting some recognition, finally, a couple of years ago, he received some recognition in the Museum of Afro-American History in Washington, D.C., African-American History, Afro-American History, where he now shares a wall with Alain Locke on the New Negro. That's a, that was kind of a significant development. But again, Harrison is a militant, race-conscious, and class-conscious, radical internationalist, and brilliant in all those areas that I mentioned, journalist, writer, editor, orator. He just belongs up there. Some of his contemporaries consider him the leading black activist and radical of his day, and I cite them. Harrison was a brilliant, autodidactic, working-class race and class conscious writer, orator, editor, educator, book reviewer, political activist, and radical internationalist. The historian Jolay Rogers said he was perhaps the foremost Afro-American intellect of his time and one of America's greatest minds. A. Philip Randolph referred to Harrison as the father of Harlem radicalism. Richard B. Moore a major activist and bibliophile who worked with the Socialist Party, African Blood Brotherhood, Communist Party, and movements for Caribbean independence and federation, described him as above all his contemporaries in his steady emphasis that a vital aim was the liberation of the oppressed African and other colonial peoples. So, stress, Glenn, the importance of readers and listeners to try and put in their request early to get Harrison, the Harrison book in their libraries, you know, so others can have access to him. You know, that's, I think, very important. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com 
where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.